It's the Occult Mr. Podcast, where we talk about the mysteries hidden behind Mickey. Caught Disney podcast. It's where we take the run of classic Disney movies and look for the magic hiding inside certain mice. Different mouse today. It is the great mouse detective we are looking at. This is Matt here. Joining me as always is Thomas, the paranoid American. That's right. Still paranoid. Still American. Okay. Oh, you still slightly Thomas. rephrased it. I was. Yeah. I was kind of. I was thinking of preempting you and just saying that beforehand and seeing how you responded to that. But uh, yeah, it's all mind games, you know? <laughs> I find, though, that watching the Disney movies definitely settles me a little bit because it it, uh, it it touches on my my nostalgic MK Ultra programming and puts it back me into, you know, like a, a Delta state. Well, this one, I, I mean, just for like our... This came out in 86, so... Uh, you're a couple years younger than me, I think. So yeah, we that's like age five, seven, somewhere around there. So we're, this is prime time for us. That said, yeah, I was I three. I was three when it came out, and I'm almost positive I had a bootleg copy, or I had I had some kind of version of this on tape growing up, and I'm not sure at what age, but for sure I saw this more than a few times. Um, I don't think I saw this. I did see it about ten years ago because uh, when my you know, when my daughter was watching a bunch of you know, animated crap, you start you know, let's track down some of the decent Disney movies or something. Something, you know, we're, my my wife and I are still really pissed off at the Minions because we we love Megamind so much. <laughs> so, <laughs> so wait, so did you see the Great Mouse Detective growing up or only? I don't think so. I remember. You didn't remember any of it. Yeah. Um, and then young Sherlock Holmes had come out a year earlier, Paramount. I know I had seen that at least once. So uh th- although I would say this is by far the better movie in the end, but <laughs> um I did see that it was surprisingly but- good. I was I was opened it up critical because I don't know, like there was a couple of things that rubbed me the wrong way, but as soon as I saw Henry Mancini, I was like, Okay, hold on, I'm gonna to lean back a little bit and just enjoy this. Vincent Price, I mean you know, singing, yeah. singing Vincent Price. It actually threw me on a Vincent Price kick. I, I had to watch uh, Madhouse and a few of his other movies recently, so I'm I'm gonna kick now. I I recently watched. Um, it was a Family Feud episode from 1983, which had uh, the cast of Gilligan's Island, though without Do- Bob Denver, so no Gilligan, but the rest of them were there, and then the cast of 66 Batman including Vincent Price as he played uh, Egghead or whatever in, in a few episodes. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, that kind of made up for the fact that Bob Denver wasn't on Team Gilligan, you know? <laughs> but, what, uh, a, what a what an awesome, you know, character. Just Vincent Price himself is such a cool character. Peter Cushing, too. Uh, he was he was in a lot of those movies, all of like the old Hammer stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess Christopher Lee goes in that, that little batch as well. So, <laughs> um. But yeah, the mouse detective is is kind of like, I guess the Little Mermaid is usually thought of as the beginning of the Disney Renaissance. But you know, this is definitely where the ball gets rolling because uh, 
we we for better or for worse we now have eisner running the thing i guess frank wells is there and katzenberger are already there so that now it's getting to these more modern behind the scene names uh this is i believe the first film musker and clements directed and of course they're going to end up doing several of the uh the linchpins of the of the renaissance film so this is kind of where mo- modern disney starts which makes the black cauldron like kind of a weird outlier you know well the black cauldron you know was supposed to was supposed to be their big break out into the new you know the new disney and it definitely did not end up being that and that was also the the, the end of the schism between don bluth and disney right because after that they parted ways did they not correct yeah so th- this is the first of like fully modern disney it was a successful movie uh the critics liked it pretty well it made a pretty good amount of money nothing like these the, you know they're going to do in a few years when they when they get their full 90s hubris and as a company and stuff so <laughs> So could you say that this Great Mouse Detective movie almost marks the the changing of the guard within Disney animation? For sure. This is also the last time uh, one of the nine old men worked on the movie. Um, I, I need to double check his name on that. Eric Larson. Eric Larson. He was the last of the nine old men. And he, he worked on this, and that was that's the end of it. He he's only I mean he's an animation consultant by this point because he actually is an old man by this point. And uh, Doctor <laughs> Dawson was modeled on him sort of as a as a, a thank you. So, um, oh, like the the face, or or was he just like a, a chubby guy? <laughs> um, you know, I didn't do a side by side, but um, <laughs> I I kind of just assumed he's a chubby guy. <laughs> But uh, now that you bring it up, it could it could have been the face. It could have been both. I'm I'm not really sure. Um, but yeah, of course, uh, and Disney really pushed it at the time that this was the first significant CG animation in one of their movies. Because I, I think the Black Cauldron had a few elements, right, which we liked. Actually, I kind of like the the way they work better in the Black Cauldron as far as the CG stuff. But this one, yeah, the, you know, the, beat... if you took the story writing from this movie and then gave it some of the attention to artwork and special effects of the Black Cauldron, you could have had an even better Black Cauldron, maybe. Yeah, like this I mean, one, this one outshined with the writing, I think. Yeah, I think that was the the big bugaboo on Black Cauldron, as we said, was taking what five books and trying to put it into like a an eighty minute movie. That's that's not a good idea. Whereas this is. I mean, this one almost has some padded out parts to the story, right? <laughs> well, and Black Cauldron, too, went through like a really long production process. So there was so much time for things to get muddied up and shuffled around and retold a million times. This one, everything got cut in half. I think the release schedule was like do it a year earlier and on half the budget. So, <laughs> you know, I, I guess, you know, what necessity is the mother of invention sometimes, right? And, and being that's, that's, that's like changing of the guard because it's scary because it's like if, if it worked then oh we were right we were right to just force everyone and get it done you know with half the time and that's what you know corporate disney starts to learn we'll give it five more years though and they're gonna throw you know truckloads of money in aladdin and beauty and the beast and stuff so but um... so so going back to our fantasia episode and i still believe more now than ever with every movie i believe it more that fantasia truly was a real magical spell, you know, a one that gets repeated, you know, every day, thousands of times all across the world. And it, in it basically invoked this spirit of Disney into the world. So it actually created 
a real life Disney reality that persists today. And it's more real than some people's actual waking reality. And I think maybe with not this movie in particular, but with that changing of the guard and Eisner taking over and the last of the old men, like that was kind of the end of Walt having any sort of residual leftover spirit to drive this company. And I think at this point forward, it's almost like corporate Disney becomes, you know, that becomes the new spirit of Disney. So like this magic spell almost turns into like a corporate entity. Exactly. This is kind of where the, the hinge starts to, to change. Right. Um, and it is fitting that the most prevalent CG scene in this movie is just a bunch of like clockwork mechanisms and cogs and gears turning, which, um, we'll also have to just like start talking about when Disney is ripping things a little from Japanese animation. Cause, uh, this comes from, they got the idea basically from, um, Miyazaki's first film, uh, the castle Castiagro. Anyway, it's, it's a loop in the third movie. I, can't quite spit out the title but that had a clock sequence and like that's cool maybe we can kind of repurpose that idea uh mm. in this case it's kind of a homage that's cool um when we get to the lion king i'll have to go into detail about how pissed off my wife is at that movie because because she loved um kimba the white lion growing up so yeah i don't i don't know about any of this so i'm excited to hear more actually i want to hear more about the overlap um here that you say it was an homage and definitely not just them ripping it off. Did they do like any kind of frame for frame homage or like what makes you say it was an homage and not just, oh, that looks cool. Let's redo it. Um, okay. I'll get the title right now. The castle of Cagliostro featured a climactic scene involving characters amidst giant turning gears in a clock tower. So it is, it's the same thing, but I mean, uh, you know, different story beats. Uh, the original script for this movie simply had them on the hands of Big Ben. So uh, the animator was basically like, hey, I saw this in another movie. Why don't they go in the clock tower and we can do like that? Uh, that the well, that's actually really fascinating to me. And just to be clear, is that Cagliostro with an A or Cagliostro with an O? Uh, C-A-G-L-I-O-S-T-R-O. Right. So, so, I mean, I assume that that's, that's a reference to... Um, the alias of an Italian occultist named Giuseppe Valsalmo. And he also went by the name Alessandro Cagliostro. And he was kind of, you know, renowned for, for being deep into the alchemical arts and sort of European mysticism and magic. So I don't know. I'm, we're always looking for those links to the occult. And here's a direct one where this Disney movie is based on a movie that's named after Cagliostro. Yeah, I've seen a fair amount of Ghibli, but I have not seen this one. So a uh, Lupin is quite pot Lupin. The third is quite popular in Japan though. I I've, I've seen him so a lot. So I've, I've, I mean, it's a Miyazaki. So obviously it's a movie people know, but mm, I have not seen that one, but yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think in the purview of this, uh, uh, of this podcast, we can definitely do spirited away um, because that was, you know, at least distributed by Disney in the state. So I think Totoro, oh, I Totoro technically could be on this list. So actually there are a few places we can hit up Ghibli because yeah, Ghibli... you've got the power, man. I mean, you name, you name the show and upload it. So whatever makes the list, like you have the ultimate power. Here. Right. No, no, I know. So I'm, uh, 
I was definitely going to do Spirited Away. I have to look at Totoro, but yeah, there's interesting elements of, you know, Japanese occultism, Shintoism, and those that obviously we don't see much in American movies. Um, yeah, I, I know very little about that, so hopefully you can you can drop some some bombs on us. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, yeah. Like, I, I think those have to be on there anyway, sure. <laughs> um, I just insist Disney, of course, dubbed them and released them that way, and I don't never watch a Miyazaki movie dubbed in English. It's horrible. <laughs> you can, so, I, I, I wanted to mention too, and I, I'm probably off by a few movies, but I want to say I distinctly remember Great Mouse Detective Happy Meal Toys or some sort of fast food related toys. And I don't know if that this movie um, and Disney had been doing that already or if, if this was like on the new wave of that. Uh, it might have been when this came out. They did re-release it in 1992. Uh, it made something like 13 million in its second run, and it, they might have promoted some toys with that if they didn't this time. Okay, but, that that probably makes more sense in in the 90s. Yeah, yeah, and especially if if you're going by your memory or something, you'd be a little older then, right? So you would have had that on your mind. Because, like I said in the last episode, like I definitely remember like black cauldron glasses and stuff, you know, but. Uh, yeah, I didn't remember the movie. <laughs> yeah, all the old like Smuckers and Welches, you know, grape glasses would usually yes. be branded with some kind of cartoon thing. Yes, yeah. yes, that kind of thing for sure. Um, how much have you read of uh, Sherlock Holmes or or whatnot? It's it's been a while. Although, I mean, right off the bat, it was like, oh, this is Doctor Moriarty. Um, like the entire story and the whole feel. And obviously that's, that's the premise, you know, spoiler alert, I, I guess, of Great Mouse Detective is that they live under Sherlock Holmes, like in his apartment. They don't, I don't think in the movie they make such a direct reference that you would know it obviously. Um, but in the book series that this is based on, they make it a little bit more obvious. And also like Sherlock Holmes lives in 22 and they live in 22 and a half. That's kind of like one of the inside jokes. And they also have the dog Toby, which isn't really their dog. It's Sherlock Holmes's dog, which again, in the movie, they don't make it as obvious, but that's kind of the, the background of the, the story this is based on. Okay. Oh yeah. I, I, I rabbit hold back to, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle for these and forgot about the book series. The movie's actually based on. So I was, I was just having a, I have like this thick book I got for, you know, six bucks several years ago. When I was riding in taxis a lot. So it's, it's the first half of all the, Sherlock Holmes writings so I, I've read most of the first half but not the second half which is probably good because do you have a Doyle, favorite um it's been a little while since I read them I mostly I just um I think it's the first story where Sir Arthur Conan Doyle just hates the Mormons and basically has them as like <laughs> a, a murder caught <laughs> so I think that's pretty good I'll have I to mean, look that, into that too oh yeah yeah it's it's I think it's the first um it's novella length because because when you say your favorite i'm like well, a lot of them are like 10 pages long and they just kind of all blur together when you read well them together, there's you know? some that have consistent themes too like there's the scarlet thread i guess um that that builds multiple stories together and that one comes up a lot in conspiracy culture because it's it instead of just being like the scarlet thread it's almost like one of those conspiracy boards with the yarn and the the red <laughs> string that like connects everything um but it's like a more elegant version of that you know it's that we're talking about sherlock Holmes here um that's putting this thread together and not you know some some crazy guy in his basement 
but it's essentially the the root work for that and i really think it's interesting too in this great mouse detective because that book series and i can't remember the exact name um uh basil of baker street that was the name of the book series by eve titus and paul galdone and paul galdone did most of the artwork uh, at least the cover art for almost every children's book that i remember growing up with like the version that was in my library slash bookstore it was pretty much all paul galdone stuff so that was kind of interesting but that also represents this entry to children to get interested into i guess sherlock holmes where if you're not if you don't want your kids reading about murderous mormon cults then maybe you ease them into it with like the the fun little mouse version and then clearly if you really liked that book series you probably would have ended up just reading sherlock holmes or vice versa you know this so it was entirely based on just mouse version sherlock holmes for kids a pretty straightforward formula and i think it's awesome actually the um title of course uh was changed which which eisner insisted that they change the title to the great mouse detective it says here feeling the name basil is too english but the the punchline is um a, a studio the, they didn't like that animation didn't like that other executives didn't like it but they had to change the name because of the boss so uh there's an inner office memo which gave preceding disney films generic titles such as Seven Little Men Help a Girl, The Wonderful Elephant Who Could Really Fly, The Little Deer Who Grew Up, The Girl with the See-Through Shoes, Two Dogs Fall in Love, Puppies Taken Away, and A Boy, A Bear, and a Big Black Cat. So that's, that's I, how they I get the joke, the although based on the two, Basil of Baker Street versus The Great Mouse Detective, The Great Mouse Detective does sound way more interesting to me. And I do think Basil of Baker Street sounds too English. Yeah, it just, it's, like, I, I like, feel like they give you like a like a tasteless cookie and uh, and some tea on the way into that movie instead <laughs> yeah, of popcorn I, and candy. Yeah, I don't mind the title change, but it's just funny that that was the result of the, the other folks in the company being annoyed by the title change because uh, this was also released as Basil the Great Mouse Detective, and uh, there's a third title. Uh, Interesting. It might be, what's the third title? The the Adventures of the Great Mouse Detective, which is kind of the same thing. That that was a '92 re-release, so maybe that's the one with the toys. But uh... and I think this movie too, Great Mouse Detective, 1986, it fully solidifies as if it weren't already established as pure Disney canon by now. But that the the intent of a lot of these Disney movies is that immediately within the first 10 to 15 minutes, sometimes in the you know the opening scenes they kill your parents so you sit just imagine this you sit your kid down in front of the tv and you go off into the other room to do your taxes or whatever it is that you got to do to leave the kid unattended and this television show or this this movie it puts them into this state where you know the thing that's happening on screen i'm going through this you know they're kind of vicariously living through this character in a way that a, only a young mind can truly attach and sort of like explore that mentality and the first thing that these Disney movies do and say, okay, your parents are dead. Your parents are gone. And then they introduce Disney intellectual property that comes on the screen. And it's like, hey, I am now your parent or I am now your guardian. And I'm going to be the one that takes, you know, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to keep you safe. We're going to sing songs. We're going to learn things together. We're going to express emotions that maybe you don't normally get to express. And like, I, like Disney and my Disney IP is going to be this proxy 
to the family that you just killed you know so like the your dad gets kidnapped or your family dies in some horrific way of course that little ip comes along it's going to be for sale later on as a toy and a t-shirt and everything else and they basically like lead you through and i'm i'm convinced at this point that this has a really like a, a very true effect on kids that are watching it and it helps them bond way more to these characters than you would if you know your parents didn't die at the beginning of every movie yeah i guess this one's a little different in that dad's kidnapped and, and eventually reunited so uh it's usually the, it's, it's in my mind it's the same theme because <laughs> well it is more permanent usually <laughs> but the the theme i guess is just that you know all of the adult supervision and all the authority figures that you're used to are now gone you know and it's out of your control and you're now at the mercy of the world but luckily you've got these disney intellectual property character sidekicks to help guide you you know so the next time you see it and you're at the store it's like oh that's the character that helped me when you when you died mommy or when you know when when you guys left me and abandoned me that's the character that that took your role so i want that toy and maybe i'll even replace you with it at some point i didn't see much animation i think in the theater as a kid um i mean a little bit as a type but i think i didn't see this in part because like you know i go to movies with my dad and he you know he wanted to see like ghostbusters oh well, i want to see ghostbusters too but i think since i was willing to see the live if, action if you stuff, had to choose between this and ghostbusters of course ghostbusters wins every time yeah um that was a year earlier by the way just if anyone's like it didn't come out at the same time because i i do remember uh the mouse i i guess my attention on was was i guess it was the bluth mouse that was american tale with five mouse right um mm -hmm. and that that definitely had like the burger king marketing at the time because i remember liking that and then i think my parents bought me like the the children's novel version of it probably because they didn't want to actually go see that in the theater but <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah i definitely remember an american tale hitting me more so than uh this one this one kind of went by my radar well and that's another that's another orphan story as well oh yeah uh <laughs> yeah yeah with all the immigrant stuff added in as well so but yeah this one i guess in in i guess as a kid it probably did look too british to me it made me think of you know sad or sunday afternoon pbs television you know so i wouldn't have it been reminded me a little bit and and in a in an unfortunate way it reminded me of the mr toad movie or the mr frog i can't remember the name toad. of it already it's yeah mr toad like that one was very english you know what i mean and i think that maybe they didn't want this one to come across as having that same feel and theme that mr toad did um and it didn't like this movie clearly i mean at least in my mind obviously very subjective but this one was way more entertaining at least in that way and it felt more cohesive like a cinematic experience and not some weird old novel that you know someone's grandpa wanted to animate at some point yeah this is the first one where actually i felt like the middle of the movie seems to be missing a little meat you could actually add a bit to this because they they start going they get on the case right they go to two locations then they get Batman trapped by a Batman villain, and then it's the climax of the movie, right? So it's pretty much like straight through in and out, which, I mean, that's good too, but I was like, this is one time I'm like, oh, they probably could have padded this a little more if they wanted, but I guess they had a year to make it, so. <laughs> and honestly, that little padding might have added some, some better uh, observations here because it was so moving along and like beat after beat after beat and the, the pacing was almost formulaic in a way. Um, there was a few places where I 
I thought that I saw like some weird things, but I I can't. I got some screenshots, or I can just describe them, but I can't tell if it was just like a production oversight or if someone was trying to relay secret messages or what. Um, but this one had less to work with than some of the other movies we've seen so far. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I mean, I guess that's just a. Uh you know, having to do this one in a pinch because this is the make or break at moment. I mean, if it's didn't, they work were like, out, guys, leave out all the Illuminati symbolism. We don't have time for that stuff this time around, you know, just sneak in like two or three. Have a, have a big concept of replacing leaders though. That, I mean, that certainly for things we look into that fits because, Hey, I don't care where you are on the political spectrum. I mean, if I was like, Hey, we've, we've all been fooled by a, by a, poorly working biden bot for the past few years you know <laughs> so i mean i know you know people hey, you're I, talking I, about my president right now i don't know about your prayers yeah um but when i was watching the queen like at first like, ah come on that wouldn't convince anybody ever you know i'm like well, we have a man falling apart maybe on a teleprompter like every day so <laughs> who knows I mean, if that's not proof that this place just runs itself, and by I mean itself, I mean like a small collection of, you know, a committee of 300 or maybe it's 30 or something. But yeah, it's they wind, they wind the dude up in the morning and just let him go out there and, you know, do, do the press conferences. And um, but, you know, it's the bankers, man. It's the bankers that are running it all behind the scenes. Yeah. Well, we'll give you some candy after you do this. <laughs> <laughs> some chocolate chocolate chip. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Hey, I mean, I guess it's not a bad gig if you're you're a little older and falling apart, and yeah, start a little dynasty. I've I've got a theory too that um that Biden might be setting us up for not an immediate Biden dynasty, but there's a very real chance that in the future and generations, the the offspring of Hunter Biden, which there are perhaps many that we don't even know about, but they could come back and try to reclaim that presidential legacy power and it would be the ultimate underdog story imagine like a right-wing son of hunter biden or grandson of hunter biden that like speaks out against the the evils of you know the granddad or something i, I know this is like almost fan fiction territory but it also feels uniquely american <laughs> yeah i the bush i mean you gotta change the name sometimes like throwing the name bush out just doesn't sit well with most people these days you know and uh well, they have. I mean, dude, that's, that was name. three runs, right? Two presidents and the original Prescott Bush basically being a president. Like at least, like he was the Cheney, right? At some point, he he was kind of like calling the shots, so the president would do what he said. I think he's the one that essentially put Nixon into power. So you can almost consider Nixon's presidency as like a proxy to Prescott Bush in a way. Right, but yeah, see, it's like you can't throw a bush in and have no one notice anymore. So you gotta gotta change up the names every once in a while, don't you? <laughs> but yeah, as long I as they're in skull and bones, then yeah. Right, but that that's where I was like watching this, and at the end, I was like, oh, okay, we're replacing the leader with a robot. You know, there's there's the people talking about the the conspiracy rabbit hole of cloning and all of that, and I was like, I guess that kind of like ties in a little bit here. I don't, I'm not, I don't really. Think oh, that's absolutely. What I mean, they're essentially yeah. trying to replace the world leader with AI, um, and it just goes awry because the good guys like hack into it and use good AI to defeat the bad AI, right? Um, so I mean, it like regardless though, it was it kind of represented AI running the show in in the final scenes, right? Um. There is going to be that. Here's the thing. I think, you know, when AI really does start to 
be in charge in whatever way. I mean, no one's going to notice. <laughs> it's just, hey, could have already happened. We, we, you know, could have like uh, some AI scheming and planning somewhere deep in the system because, of course, it wouldn't uh, announce its presence to people. <laughs> You know what we need is a great mouse detective, like a mouse version of Minority Report, because that would kind of be a more modern day retelling of the same story, right? You've got the forensic analysts being, you know, Sherlock Holmes and Watson or, you know, Q Dawson in this movie. Um, but it's essentially like the same sort of, you know, plot points, except they get chased by horrible ai spider death robots. And, you know, one of them has their face restitched. Yeah, that's the cute, the cute. Um, mouse has to replace its eye and have horrible surgery for that. And all Hear that. me out. Stuart Little meets Minority <laughs> Report. I think it would be kind of cool. And there was there's a, a show recently. I think they just aired the, the final episode of it. It was called Class of 09, which the premise is essentially that the FBI uh, turns over most of its investigative work to just an AI model. And the AI model determines who the most likely suspects are based on, you know, AI neural net magic but the head of the fbi at some point small spoiler alert not a big spoiler alert but they they hand over a list and it's like here's a list of people that are never allowed to be considered when the ai is going through and making its decisions on who is most likely so then it's like if you were the one that did it and the computer knew about you but it was told to never bring your name up then does it just go to like the next guy and sorry just because you were the next most likely to do it, even though you definitely didn't do it. Comes and arrests you. And it kind of just turns into minority report at that point where, you know, the system's running the show, but they don't have cool precogs. They just have computers. Uh, oh, I'm trying to be realistic and stuff, not having the crazy mystical edge. <laughs> but th there could be a great mouse detective with precogs running the show. Again, that would, it would be a cooler retelling, I think. More, very more modern. And by modern, I mean early 2000s, right? That was when Minority Report came out. It's, it's still a bit, well, and we, if we're talking the story, you got to go farther back, Philip right? K. <laughs> yeah, Philip K. Dick, we're talking <laughs> 70s, right? So actually, you're going back. Well, not you're not going as back in time as Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. So, Right, and uh, this movie does modernize it because he's analyzing like, um, like a bullet casing. I think the movie opens up and it's like he's doing true forensic work and analyzing the the you know the burn patterns on the the casings of like a certain bullet i think yeah i guess if this in any way was programming uh people of our our vintage it would be maybe maybe this is how a bunch of people got into steampunk <laughs> may part of that also csi this is like like a laying the groundwork for people to be fascinated with that whole forensic process too yeah, I guess. Well, I guess it's where your attention goes. Says mine was going towards the 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 clunky robot and the and the you know airship. Airship is of course uh, the the signifier for steampunk. I think so. That or Final Fantasy. <laughs> yeah. Well, then if we just keep rewinding it, then you could say um, the time machine, right? Or any of Jules Verne's work, which was a lot of that original steampunky feel. Yeah. Yeah. Speak, speaking of which, uh, the. Dis Tokyo's Disney Sea has the uh, Jules Verne land, which is like the uh, most steampunkiest place I think you're going to find in a in a theme park. So, <laughs> there was a Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea ride at Walt Disney World at some point. Oh although, yeah, I mean, like the the oh the original version of it was kind of cool and steampunky in a way. 
Yeah, the problem there was the lagoon, you know, still water in Florida is bad news. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's moving a little bit, but it's not moving that much. So um, the Tokyo version, <laughs> it's it passes through kind of um, some kind of curtain or something. It's actually a dry, dark ride, but there's water in the windows that goes up and down. Mm. And so it just makes everything outside look like it's underwater. You're living so, in a simulation, man. I know, but yeah, simulation. but they just, you know, try to find a way to make it so it's more maintainable. <laughs> um, so that that's pretty cool. What else they have in there? They got they got a good Chinese place that's very steampunk looking. Um, you can get a gyoza dog there. That's kind of fun. And uh, oh, yes, they have the voyage to the center of the Earth ride, which is on a test track system. So it takes you through weird underground things and you see a center of the earth monster or whatever and then blast you out the volcano it's fun it's a great ride disney sees a great park center of the earth oh so you believe in the the globe yeah yeah and th this ride does at least for sure okay yeah. <laughs> well then you, then you know it's fake if disney's endorsing it yeah I, what would it what, because what, what would it be otherwise journey to the center of the turtle that's holding up the world <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that's, right. a, that's a longer name that doesn't work <laughs> journey to the underside of the uh infinite plane or yeah <laughs> journey across the the ice wall with un troops shooting at you <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah there's a poeticism if you say journey to the center of the earth isn't there <laughs> and, and i want to know too in, in addition to the ai thing but this also has a little bit of manchurian candidate uh feel to it right a little little mk ultra mind control aspect the same way that you want to take over the queen um by you know putting in this this mechanical version that can take programming instructions yeah yeah for sure although i was thinking of um you know getting getting dad to build the robot so you, of course using blackmail and threats of murder i mean that seems a little well that's definitely along manchurian candidate lines i guess to a certain degree i mean that's more direct coercion i guess in mind than you know brainwashing but and i like that these are all just like typical cia tactics yes yes it's a, they i didn't they, i guess they don't have a chapter entitled the great mouse detective in the in the handbook though not like alice in wonderland <laughs> no well uh yeah eisner didn't get to rename that section in the cia manual so they just uh, they just left it as basil of baker street that's too bad um you you were talking about the books a little bit. Uh, actually, I don't know anything about the 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 mouse books. Uh, do you have some something on that other than what we've already? I, said? I mean, I remember reading a few of them when I was growing up, and I went and I looked at some of the synopsis of them, and they just they go on a few different adventures. This movie represents like one of the particular ones, and they take little aspects here and there of the different books. But like I was saying before, it's it's essentially a really cool introduction to a younger reader demographic i guess um i don't know i mean because it's not like sherlock holmes books are all that hard to read but it's definitely like a like a kid-friendly version that you would you know ramp your kids up into working towards their way into you know an actual sherlock holmes novel yeah because uh teaching english in japan with with higher students i actually did use that book a little bit for teaching although when, when it's english as a second language it is a, a bit you know difficult <laughs> so i ended up finding some books that were a little simpler in the end but uh yeah yeah generally less i mean it's it's like the same thing just way less murder <laughs> yes yes 
but it's something you would kind of, especially adults in Japan might look at that or a slightly simplified uh, Sherlock Holmes to to um learn some English. I, I know the BBC show was quite popular in Japan. So uh, the place I was working 10 years ago is kind of funny because I, I go I went into a midnight screening of uh, a preview of Star Trek Into Darkness and my manager's there and we're like, what, what? I was there because I'm a, you know, hardcore Trekkie. She was there because she's obsessed with Benedict uh, Cumberbatch. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, it's kind of surprising because it's like, what are you doing? What are you doing here? You know, because she's thinking completely of Benedict. I'm thinking completely of just Trekkie stuff. So um, he's like, wow, he really likes Benedict Cumberbatch too. <laughs> I, I like him fine. Sure. Uh, I did. I didn't have a massive crush on him like she did, but yeah. <laughs> and I, it was funny. I did around that time end up teaching a class based on the tv show where we practice scenes from the show or watch that and stuff and um yeah it ended up just being a, a bunch of middle-aged housewives that were all that had a crush on Benedict <laughs> don't get it yeah so i don't know that, that was kind of fun so uh do you have a favorite Sherlock Holmes. I mean, you can count Basil if you feel like it, the actor or the mouse in this movie. Uh, well, no, I mean, I th I think I really love the the Scarlet Thread narrative within Sherlock Holmes. I don't remember what story it was in particular. There's also been a few with like secret societies um, that he helps uncover, and I think there might have been a reference to Golden Dawn in one of them too. But uh, I I can't put my finger on any one of the in particular stories. But I, Arthur Arthur Conan Doyle was really big into occult research, so he incorporated a lot of that into the mostly into like Moriarty's schemes. So the things that um you know Sherlock Holmes would end up trying to investigate into would pull on some of those you know that research that he was doing. Oh, for sure. I, I was going by a uh, actor was my question. If there's a Oh, uh, honestly, I don't think anyone's done it justice aside from there was like a, a British TV series and I don't even know who the actor was, but he, he was way more of the right person than I think Hugh Jackman's played him. Right. Um, Benedict Cumberbatch has played him. Oh, no, Robert Downey Jr. Did, did. Oh, Jack Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, no, I haven't. I haven't liked any of the American versions of Sherlock Holmes to date. No, I don't think anyone's nailed it yet. Yeah, I was really confused when the show Elementary came out because I'm like, but the BBC Sherlock's on the air now, and you're doing, yeah, I, that show confused me. Um, <laughs> and of course, Basil's named after Basil Rathbone, who does our the uh, o the old school British version of Holmes, and and whose voice we do hear uh, upstairs when you hear Holmes talking, uh, Sherlock Holmes talking a bit. That's a 1966 recording of Basil Rathbone uh, performing as Sherlock Holmes. You know, interesting. Um, the the nineteen twenty two Sherlock Holmes was John Barrymore, which I think was Drew Barrymore's granddad, grandpa. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's and that's. Right. I mean, when I think of Sherlock Holmes and I see a face, I th I think that's the one. Oh, okay, study in Scarlet. Study in Scarlet is the one that I was trying to think of before too. Right. Right. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Um. Sorry, my my thought train just derailed for a moment there. Sherlock Holmes, uh, the stories. Yeah, yeah, I just, I just crapped out on the brain there. And there was, <laughs> uh, there was a Peter Cushing one as well. I guess. Oh, oh, the Seven Percent Solution. I think that's uh done by getting back to Trek. I think that's the one Nick Meyer did, uh, in the late seventies. And and I don't, I don't remember so much about the portrayal of Holmes in that as being good or bad. I do remember the movie itself. 
being pretty good. So, but I don't remember if they hit the the nail on their home's head or not. I didn't even know this was a movie, but there's a movie called The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes' Smarter Brother starring yeah. Gene Wilder. Uh, have you seen that? I've never even heard of that before. I think I saw it in the 80s on cable television. It was quite successful at the time. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to go down like a whole other rabbit hole here because that I know for a fact that I've seen this, but it just sounds awesome and I have to rewatch it. The Hound of Bakersville's 1959 where Sherlock Holmes is played by Peter Cushing and it also has Christopher Lee in it. So that's got to be an awesome one. Yeah, that's got to be Hammer. <laughs> no way. 59, those guys, um, for sure. But yeah, I, I did like the BBC show a few years, but I just, I think I petered out after maybe the first season. Like I watched the first year. I was like, okay, that was fun and never really felt compelled to to continue with it. So, so I'm curious, did you have a favorite character from The Great Mouse Detective? Well, of course, I, you know, I like, I like Radigan because he's he's the Batman villain voiced by a Batman villain who also is like one of the coolest guys on screen, right? So, is uh, that your favorite character was Radigan? Yeah, and he, I mean, he recorded a song to to kill the the Basil. And, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and pressed it on vinyl. I mean, or made an acetate or something. So that's it's probably just, acetate because he didn't need to to play it that much. Yeah, just the one time. So, but yeah, once. That that was definitely my favorite part of the movie because it's not that's just such like an a, awesome gig. Yeah, he he basically it's... custom commissioned an entire, um, you know, vinyl or acetate record to just play. What was the exact uh, lyrics? Do you remember? Uh, goodbye, so long, so farewell. So, uh, it was like an old timey yeah. ragtime, and it was it was very like upbeat, but it was it was <laughs> him leaving. Um, you know, Basil in this horrible predicament. They put him in like a, 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 a remind me like the mousetrap game. Like it had all these different mechanisms, uh, what you would call like a Rube Goldberg machine of death. And oh, then yeah, as he's flying away in this blimp, this song is just playing. It's like goodbye, farewell, so long. <laughs> yeah, because uh, Vincent Price also, also earlier in the movie sings the other Mancini tune, the, the world's greatest criminal mind. So we get the. Excuse me, we get the two Mancinis in here, which is kind of fun. So, I mean, I I like Radigan a lot. He has some really cool symbolism um, given to him. Like, one of the examples that I noticed is he dresses really sharp, and he actually even wears these white gloves most of the time. And he's got all, he's just surrounded by henchmen. And so, like, the white gloves kind of signifying that he's not going to get his hands dirty because he's got all these other henchmen to kind of do his dirty work for him. And I think that also he's trying to overcompensate a little bit because he gets really angry if anyone calls him a rat. Even though his name is Radigan, he's a mouse. You know, he just he wants to be called a mouse. And I think that that kind of portrays itself in him trying to act way higher class than he is and dress in, like, really nice clothes and have, like, this really slick hair. And in comparison, you've got Basil, who kind of is more of like high society. You know, he lives under Sherlock Holmes, but he's not trying to make any sort of, you know, good impressions on anyone. He's like smoking and he's, you know, a little bit he's a little bit rough around the edges compared to how Radigan tries to portray himself. But then at the end of the movie, when Radigan has to get his hands dirty, right, the gloves come off literally and he's got these big claws under that. And they had this like big final showdown scene and it kind of, re and I, I know this movie came first, but it reminded me of like the final battle in last action hero, which is one of my favorite 
sort of standoff scenes like on top of this big building um of course this one's on uh big ben it's on this big clock but it was such a cool action scene and um and i thought the way that they transformed radigan in particular where it was you know he turns into like an actual monster at this point and then you realize it truly was going to be between brute and uh an intellect a little bit although you mentioned Holmes being like the high society right which I, which I guess Basil would be of, of mouse society. Compared to Radigan, really. I guess. And, and it's not necessarily like class, like they were richer or anything like that. It was just like way more refined because Radigan is like, you know, he's a sewer rat, essentially. Yeah, the, you got to add the sewer part to really piss him off, I think. But yeah, because Holmes, you know, uh, he, he he's basically a slob who sits around doing cocaine most of the time unless he's working. So, <laughs> well, exactly though. Right. I mean, like that's high society. If, if you've got leisurely time, then just like sit around and do cocaine and forensic work and investigate mysteries. You know, you're kind of like living in luxury at that point. Like, right. I guess he's eccentric is the, the right term. So, but yeah, of the, of Basil and Radigan, Radigan's definitely the more eccentric Whereas in with Holmes and Moriarty, they're both kind of equally eccentric. It's just you know that that touch of evil, I guess. <laughs> and and I gotta say, my favorite character by far was Fidget the Bat, uh, which I understand maybe was less of a main character, more of a sidekick. And maybe this is just because that was like the toy or the Happy Meal or the glass that I ended up getting had Fidget the Bat. But it also I had to look up the difference too, and, and Fidget looks very similar to the bat from Fern Gully, which has some of the same mannerisms. Except Fidget has this awesome like 1920s newspaper boy gangster hat, um, and it just makes his entire look like Fidget's the the coolest looking sidekick. I think I kind of felt like he was kind of a proto Stitch. Had some vibes. Yeah, I can I absolutely see a little bit of Stitch in there too. I, I but I can't say he's my favorite because halfway through the movie I I couldn't remember his name and I just started writing bad again. So <laughs> bad again and rad again. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, he's rad again. He'll be bad again. Okay, so <laughs> so my the last several times I referenced him in my notes, I just wrote that down, which I don't know. Maybe that's not showing the proper respect towards um fidget. I'm looking. And then also a note that um the bats and the rats are kind of portrayed in this movie as these creatures of the night. They're usually in these dark, damp environments where Basil and, and uh, Dawson kind of, you know, they go wherever they want during the daytime, even though, you know, they, they can still work at night. They're trying to paint this sort of, you know, good versus evil archetypes uh, very well. I think they establish it pretty good through just the way that, radigan dresses and you know his presence he's always like the biggest thing on screen whenever he's trying to make a big point so they establish all of that stuff really well subtly while we're on the characters um there it's been a little while since we watched cinderella but they've basically plugged in the cinderella cat haven't they yeah so in here her name is named felicia and felicia is basically radigan's like you know executioner i guess (laughs) is like he just rings a little bell and felicia comes and eats whoever is offending him and felicia's a big girl um so that that kind of implies that you know radigan's feeding felicia all the failed henchmen constantly that's his rancor yeah yeah you're right up here 66 batman villain he'd be named mousetrap for sure um (laughs) 
I mean, hey, it's better than Egghead, which was Price's Batman villain, I believe. <laughs> and, um, I don't remember exactly what part of the movie this was, but I, I have a note that says uh, racist Asian character with a gun seven minutes in. I think I'm going to enjoy this. Mm, I'm seeing if I have. Any I think they had like a like action. a Mandarin dude. Uh, he was dressed. Oh, that's what it was. It was that Basil enters the movie dressed up as like a Mandarin gangster. Um, after he fires a gun, and then he takes off his disguise, and and you know under this like this uh doctor you know Fu Manchu sort of getup is Basil underneath it all. So I just thought it was just like some you know very casual 1986. Uh, Disney racism, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess so. Although you know, there was the the Orientalism, right? Uh, thing kind of alongside the Victorian era with the you know you you'd have a was it like you're not wrong. I mean, you're not wrong. You're not wrong world, because right? people would describe like the Orient as like the exotic place to go and bring things back, you know, from. So that was very high in Victorian. It is funny. Also, because I, I feel like that word just uh, in, today has kind of bad connotation. Not well, people don't necessarily think that's the best word to use, I guess. But uh, talking about Disneyland, Disney Sea, one of the reasons they're so nice here is because they're not run by Disney; they're run by the Oriental Land Company. And if you're mm -hmm. talking to someone and they're not familiar with that already, they think you're being like offensive or something. I'm like, no, oh, that's what it's <laughs> well, called. Well, <laughs> well, as I understand it, maybe you can help clear this up, but. It's just that people aren't Oriental. Oriental is like something that you would describe to like a noun or an inanimate object or maybe aspects of culture. But to to refer to a person as like an Oriental, that's where the uh, the offensive part comes in. Do I understand that part of it? That sounds reasonable enough, but it's still like people have a little knee jerk reaction, you know, to just so. the word itself. Just yeah, like Oriental. Yeah. Yeah. Are we going to get like demonetized on, on YouTube for saying the word? We were monetized in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I, I, does anyone still try to make money off YouTube? I don't know. I guess if they have, well, no, and if they haven't been for 10 years, they might not. Well, you, YouTube's a litmus test. So YouTube is what lets you know if you can get monetized here, then you can work with Pepsi and Coca Cola and Tampax and Hyundai and. You know, name name the corporation that you can be friendly with. Like, I don't know. It's interesting, right? Like Travis Scott gets a gets a, a McDonald's meal. <laughs> <laughs> I, this it would be fun to say that this this uh this podcast was sponsored by Tampax. <laughs> I mean, you can say it. I could say it. Yeah, I can give them some free some free um. Oh yeah, well, actually, you know, funny you mentioned that, but this this show now is officially endorsed by Tampax. Right. Okay. We've said it here. The, the executives all know that for sure. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. At the end. So considering how sharp Basil's supposed to be, they did a piss poor job tying Fidget up. I mean, the climax of the movie would have been averted if Fidget had not gotten out of his ropes. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's the, the Disney aspect of it where they, they come close to death, but never quite uh, match it there. The, the same exact way that when Rattinger puts the, or Rattigan puts them in that predicament and then just like leaves them there, you know, obviously the bad guy leaves you so that you can escape this, you know, over elaborate thing. It's the whole James Bond and the Austin Powers uh, sort of trope. 
He put so much planning into his departure, though. You have to, I mean, it's not like he just left. He, uh, he's going out in a. Eric it was like a Count of Monte Cristo style, like, <laughs> like send off for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, that, that was a class setup. That, that was, again, the, the song is probably my single favorite thing <laughs> in, in this movie, which I, I was actually, I had to look up a little bit. And yeah, the song was written for this movie. I guess it's kind of a standard. I know I've heard it other places. Um, well, in addition to the over elaborate mouse trap death trap that he puts him in, and the awesome song as he's flown flown away on his zeppelin, the way that he gets Basil there is actually pretty cool too. Where he show like Basil basically thinks that he's uncovered some big clue, right? He takes the paper and he burns it and he mixes it with salt water and he you know finds that it's got some kind of chemical in it that means that it came from only a certain place in the city. And that's how he pinpoints it. And when he gets there, it's like, oh man, the culmination of all this detective work. But then it's like a big surprise party because Rattinger knew that, or Rattigan knew that he was going to show up at this place because of the clues that he left him. And the the surprise party aspect I thought was just like such a cool, you know, a fun like villain thing to do is to like surprise the guy that's hunting you down with a big surprise party and then tie him up. Well, that's the whole uh, Moriarty mo, isn't it? Give give Holmes like an impossible case that he knows he's going to figure out to back him in a corner, right? So <laughs> right. because because they they kind of respect each other on that level, like they're they're sort of equal intellects, um, and this is the only role that they can really play. I mean, uh, bringing in Trek yet again. I mean, some of my favorite quote unquote Sherlock Holmes or some of those Next Generation episodes, you know, uh, where they, I think it's. Dennis Davis or something playing Moriarty and uh old Commander Data is Sherlock Holmes. I'm not going to say he's the best on screen, but it's still <laughs> no. fun to watch, right? No, he's not. <laughs> no, I think P- Peter Cushing um Peter Cushing and maybe Barry Moore, they're the ones that they hold the crown still. Okay. Yeah, I maybe because of the PBS TV I, I saw enough of the Basil Rathbone that I I'll I'll go for the namesake here, but still he's too squeaky clean. I mean, I, I think part of the charm of um Holmes is he's he's a very screwed up dude, you know, who Yeah, I want to think that, that Holmes was like one of the Jack the Rippers, right? He was like one of the guys. <laughs> well, I have to go with the Crowley was the Ripper theory. I like that one, but Well, there were multiple, <laughs> so there there you, you could say that it was, you know, Crowley and Okay. Except then it would have to be Arthur Conan Doyle, wouldn't it? So <laughs> I mean, it feels like they they would have at least, you know, kept the same company. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and this this one's way tangential, but um, a, triggered by that Zeppelin scene as Radigan is flying away, it just evoked another old cartoon that I haven't seen in decades. But there was a Alvin and the Chipmunks movie where they go on like around the world and 80 days type adventure in these big hot air balloons or Zeppelins or something. I'm very hazy on the details, but I'm going to have to add that to my list too. Is that is that like... 2D animation? That's 2D animation, it. yeah. The, okay. the, we're talking mid-90s, like, I think. Okay, early to mid-90s. Yeah, because there was the TV show in the 80s, which I see on Saturday mornings, and still I still have that theme song stuck in my head. I'll I'll have <laughs> I I'll I hear that before I hear the Christmas songs for, for the chipmunks. Yeah. Uh if anyone knows that show that just got stuck in your head too, probably. So <laughs> do you want to throw anything out? on this movie that we have not gotten to already i do and i'm surprised it hasn't come up yet but uh the the vaudeville scene 
um this might be peak sort of furry you know furry uh like seductive disney animation outside of uh who framed roger rabbit um i think you know jessica rabbit i think like because this one is it's got a vaudeville scene where this girl comes out i think it's a cat right it's a cat that's dancing right um it's a white cat and she's got a blue outfit on like a little blue suit that she kind of like strips into in a in a very showy way and she's got this song that's that's you know again it's a disney movie and i just remember like a bunch of little kids in the and i like to reimagine this as if it just came out this year in 2023 and you know you brought your kids to the theater and she's singing you know drink beer and i'll take off my blues because she's wearing this blue outfit so it's like get drunk and i'll strip for you there's nothing that i won't do like these are the actual lyrics from the song that she's singing to this you know bar of it's it's almost like a pirate saloon is the way that i would kind of describe it. it's like half wild west saloon um uh, because they've got like a ragtime piano player and this vaudeville lady on the screen uh around the stage but then the people in the bar are almost like dressed up like you know like it's a, from a shanty town and uh, i think even basil and uh and uh dawson are like dressed up as stereotypical pirates like straight out of you know hook like peter pan yeah my notes there this place exploits whomever they want is she shipping for rough trade nothing the mouse won't do is that kosher dawson just wants mouse <laughs> tang uh, maybe she is a mouse if, uh, since i wrote dawson just yeah okay maybe yeah she was a mouse not a guy okay <laughs> yeah I, i'm seeing her like you know trying to remember which it was but yeah yeah it was like uh Apparently, Eisner wanted to get Madonna to sing it, but that didn't work out. So, interesting. I mean, it, it it had the feel. You know what I mean? It definitely had like a Madonna feel to the uh the visuals of it. You so. know, I guess they get that going a few years later in Dick Tracy, right? So, <laughs> which um, you, I mean, you... I just want to say she didn't accidentally look sexy. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, just on a, on a quick tangent, since I brought up Dick Tracy, have, have you seen Warren Beatty's um, I Want to Keep the Copyright videos? No, I, I don't even oh, know what this is. I've, okay. I've seen the movie, of course. Right. And there's been nothing Dick Tracy since then because Warren Beatty himself owns the IP and he wants to keep it like because they never made two. So uh, I think it was 2008 or something. There was like this special shown like one time on TCM or something where it's a shot at um, maybe Hollywood studios and, and there people are talking waiting for Dick Tracy and then Dick Tracy rolls up and it's a, like a 72 year old Warren Beatty in the, in the yellow coat and stuff. And then they go to a diner and like Leonard Martin interviews him. And then the beginning of the year, same thing happens, except now Warren Beatty's like 85, still wearing the, the coat, still like, oh, why isn't he letting it go? Does he just want to like remain the last Dick Tracy until he's dead and then someone else can take the mantle? I guess, but in the newer ones, like even more incoherent than the 2008 one. So <laughs> it's clear, like, someone's like, hey, this cop, this copyright runs out in a week. Quick, grab a production crew. We're going to make something <laughs> I, i've got the i've got the yellow coat in the um closet so i but it is interesting because i mean dick tracy's pretty much off the the map these days nobody thinks about dick tracy much and that's partly because warren Beatty's sitting on it you know someone did the same thing with sherlock holmes which clearly isn't the case because well one it's i guess it's fully public domain and uh there's like eight thousand sherlock holmes that have been created in the last 15 years so 
Yeah, I wonder where the the shadow is and all of that. Because I think the shadow was probably close to public domain. Yeah, but that movie was a, a massive flop, wasn't it? So, whereas Dick Tracy wasn't a hit, but it wasn't. It, I think it has a reputation as being a, as a flop, but it, I think it broke even. So that's why it the Dick Tracy cool. movie was great. I mean, it had Al Pacino in it. It had. Oh, I mean, it had he's a, great. A long list of great characters. It had amazing um, costume. Flat top has this like weird, almost look like like a garbage pail kids that grew up you know what i mean but it looks way better than the garbage pail kids movie of course are you familiar with the dick tracy comic strip specifically in the 1960s i mean it's been a while i've got a, i've got them printed behind me somewhere because it's like one of those comics that you have to read like tintin but i mean i don't know any of them off the top of my head at this point okay i'm, I'm gonna point you to i, I love the it... look i love the look that they had I think it's about the years um, 1964 to 66 ish. <clears throat> Excuse me. Is this the sharp nosed Dick Tracy? No, this is Moon Maid era Dick Tracy. Where Dick Tracy, they go to the moon and then Dick Tracy Jr. meets Moon Maid who lives on the moon and they get married and, and there's spaceships. I think Dick Tracy is like a sheriff on the moon or something for a while. <laughs> no, okay, this one's not ringing any bells. Uh, it's called, okay, wild. I'm looking at week. It's the space period. Um, as technology progressed, the methods that Tracy and the police used to track and capture criminals took the form of increasingly fanciful atomic powered gadgets developed, blah, blah. This led in the, this led in the 60s to the advent of the space coop a spacecraft with a magnetic propulsion system. Uh, Tracy and his friends having adventures on the moon, meeting Moon Maid, who lives in Moon Valley. Moon technology became standard issue on Tracy's police force, including air cars, flying cylindrical vehicles. So, and, and the, the creator of Dick Tracy was uh, obsessed with, like, magnetic propulsion. Like, he was like, I think he was like, we're not getting to the moon with rockets, you know, it has to be magnetic propulsion. Basically, once um, once the Apollo missions were on TV and everything, um, people can take that however they want. Uh, but, you know, he dropped it from Dick Tracy because it just didn't make sense anymore. Was was he a moon denier? N no, he was a propulsion denier. He was like rockets don't work. Right. But I mean, does that when they said that rockets did work, was he like, I don't believe it. They never went to the moon. It was all fake. Propulsion well, still doesn't work. I don't I don't know if he was convinced after that because he did drop it from the comic strip at that point. And then a few years after that, he uh, I guess it's Chester Gould. Um, he quit writing it, you know, and, and the people that took it over um, basically made took it back to its roots. Right. It's just like normal somewhat normal detective story no more alien girlfriends for for this 1920s mobster storyline <laughs> yeah yeah but yeah definitely just for weird stuff that does touch on you know some uh conspiracy friendly um topics yeah that's that space period of dick tracy is some gold so <laughs> So anyway, that was vaudeville. That was a big talk about Dick Tracy. Um, <laughs> I guess we'll pull this one into the shack then. Uh, I just want I want to throw this one observation out there. It is like For the sure. weirdest tangent. So there was one scene, and I think this just goes under to like um, being stretched for time and probably 
passing off different parts of scenes to different groups of animators. But there's one part where he's Basil is like running up this uh, stack of toys, I guess. And at the very top are these like little, you know, alphabet bricks. And for some reason, on every time the scene changes, the like the they're the same colors, but a different letter is showing. But I didn't find any like cool words or patterns it was making out of all that. So I I just chalked it up to production, you know, shortcuts and maybe just not having that next frame available to you to know what the next guy is going to put as like, you know, was it facing D or N or whatever. But there was one scene, it's at 32 seconds in, 32.12 basically, and it's where they're still running through this toy store. um, And there's a, I got a frame of it because, man, I, it says on this little sign, I-N-L-K-11. And it maybe it was like I-N-L- L-11 I tried a whole bunch of variations I didn't find anything at all that this might have meant or where like there's no words that end in I-N-L-K um at all there's not a single word that ends with that um and then I tried maybe it was like dash L-L and you know and I tried all these different variations but I I just can't think put a bunch of random letters on this poster in the background um I don't know, like ver- as opposed to an actual word. And I tried different languages uh, just in case maybe it was like, a you know, something in Swiss or German, even though that wouldn't have made sense because this doesn't take place um, anywhere else in Europe. But yeah, so if anyone has any idea what what scene or what this is trying to say in 3212, or if it's just like, let's just put a bunch of random letters on this thing for no reason. Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. That's where they needed the extra year of production, right? So the blocks could say, like, you know, the devil is my pilot or something, right? <laughs> right. Ask about the Illuminati, yeah. <laughs> Ask me about the Illuminati, yeah. That that's a, hey, that would be a fun button to make, you know. <laughs> well, and that and that um that's a reference to the DuckTales episode. I don't remember the exact um episode and season and everything. But even in that one, on the first scene, it says ask about the Illuminati. Illuminati, but then on these subsequent scenes, when they show it from different angles, uh, those letters get all jumbled up, and then eventually it doesn't make any sense at all. It doesn't spell anything out. So, uh, and again, I don't know if that's just because like they had more time when they were working on the first one, or if like the next guy didn't get the the message, or maybe only the guy that worked on the first frame was in the Illuminati, <laughs> and none of the other guys were in the Illuminati, so they didn't know to to put it on there. I don't know, man. It's a it's a mystery. Oh, um, I should note, since you mentioned that, that Mr. Flaversham is voiced by Alan Young, who did Scrooge McDuck for 40 years. And it's was also all connect- everything goes back to DuckTales, man. Yeah, it was also Wilbur Post and uh, Mr. Ed. So that that was that guy. That was Mr. Ed. Wow. OK, well, no, I that was uh, Wilbur Post. The, the guy Oh, the who- neighbor. Wilbur's the yeah. neighbor, right? Right, right, right. So but I thought that was interesting as in Mr. Ed. So. A show that I loved when I was five and probably would not enjoy now. So, or maybe I would. I don't know. I have to give Mr. Edits its time in the sun. So, get him out of the stable a bit. <laughs> um, I guess I should ask what's going on in your world. As, as oh, funny you should mention because as of last week, I finally got the homunculus owner's manual in print. In uh, in all of its glorious thirty-three plus pages of original artwork, it breaks down. 
the entire concept of uh, the homunculus. And it is, you know, co-created here by Juan Ayala, uh, our homie Juan, that I also do the Occult Book Club with. But I want to say this is this is the first and only illustrated homunculus owner's manual that has ever been published in ever in English, in America, in the world, perhaps every other homunculus related book has either been some kind of a reference, um, like a research sort of book, or it's been an actual grimoire. And this is a culmination of the research into all those different grimoires, all the different, the, the Crowley homunculus, the Perichelsian homunculus. Um, we even get into the concept of an artificial corporation that represents an artificial person that could be a corporate homunculus. There's an Epsteinian homunculus because Epstein was uh, trying to breed, you know, like 20 different women at a time on his various ranches using these magical circles based on Crowleyan magic from Moonchild. There's the Jack Parsons homunculus. Um, we've just got so many of them. There's a guy called uh, Van Kufenstein, who's in the Guinness Book of World Records. If you search the Guinness Book of World Records right now for homunculus, this guy still holds the record for the largest homunculus at 30 centimeters tall or something. So it was a very large uh, belief for the longest time. And then it just kind of disappeared around the 18th leading into the 19th century. Homunculus just kind of fell out of fashion. And uh, we think it's because people that know how to make homunculus they want all the power and the magic for themselves so yeah that the homunculus owner's manual it unveils all of these secrets and more all right you have to get your scary. appearance permission to uh to handle this ah uh, okay well no, no, you gotta i mean the bet i mean of course uh, buy some check it out but being given that on the street would be just that would be magical someone handing it to you and you're like oh okay <laughs> or you just find it I, I mean that's the idea right if you just came across a random homunculus owner's manual uh on in like a bus stop you know then hopefully it would be more interesting to pick up than if it said something that you know oh i went to rich, the university of quick. georgia in the deep south people handed out chick tracks on street corners <laughs> i've actually been handed those things like like i didn't find them i was handed them sometimes that's which that's, i wish like... i could get these cheap enough that i could just go out and give them away <laughs> on street corners yeah that'd be <laughs> uh, so someone someone of uh, uh independent means can can do that i guess so i'm sure you'll be happy if they do that so <laughs> i would appreciate uh, it i mean more of the world needs more homunculi <laughs> The Avengers of Homunculus. Homunculus. I can't say it quite right. Okay. Because it's not it's not in the normal vocabulary stays, is it? You gotta bring it's, it back. It's a very and and honestly, me and Juan have gone back and forth on what an expert in the homunculus should be called. And I'm I'm very homunculus. Feel very passionate. It should be a homunculologist. And okay. it's not the easiest word to say because first you have to know how to say homunculus quickly but the ologist so it's a a homunculologist not a homunculologist not a homunculologist but a homunculologist right homunculus homunculus there's an easy way to shorten it anyway yeah you, you know, I'll, I'll leave that to to your designs of course um, <laughs> as for this podcast it is a cult disney on twitter that's the best place i guess to interface if you wanted to uh we're in the patreon umbrella of umbrella See, I can't talk anymore. Umbrella of uh, podcast. It's that, it's that homunculus magic. It is podcastio podcastius, uh, where you can support these. Get them on. Well, actually, 
this one I tend to post straight away. But you get other podcasts to touch early, including Films and Filth, where you talk about really good films and really bad films, alternating those from week to week. Time Enough Podcast, where we talk about The Twilight Zone. And some other folks do some video game ones, like Luke Loves Pokemon, Hyrule Field Report, about Zelda games, and the Game Game Show, where gamers are gaming each other with gaming questions and other kinds of questions, not always gaming questions. Okay, there's a mystery to solve. Where are my socks? Under the bells, don't be unmoved. 